The Servant Song by Richard Gillard is one of the most popular contemporary worship songs, sung by churches of many different traditions. It's often chosen for services of ordination and licensing new ministers. The song captures something vital about the way of discipleship. As Christians, we are called to a life of service together, to love and support one another and the wider community in all the joys and sorrows of our lives. Where does that idea of being a servant come from? Of course, for Christians it comes from Jesus. Jesus famously washes the feet of his disciples in John 13. On his very last meal with his friends, Jesus takes a towel and a basin of water and kneels before each of them in turn to wash the dust from their feet. Jesus then calls the disciples and us to do this for one another. He calls himself a servant and invites those who would be leaders not to lord it over others, but to seek to be the servants of all. The word minister is simply the Latin word for servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus frames his entire ministry around this idea of service, which sets others free in their turn to serve. From earliest times in the church, this powerful revolutionary notion reshapes the very idea of God and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. The very idea of greatness, of leadership, is turned upside down. Almighty God is no longer a distorted projection of human ideas of power, but radically different. Almighty God comes to us, takes flesh, and becomes a servant, giving his own life to set others free in lives of service. But where do these ideas first take shape? Remember Simon Peter's reaction to the foot washing. Peter thinks he knows who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. But Peter is offended at the idea of the Messiah, God's anointed, washing the dust from his feet. The people of Israel were expecting and hoping for a different Messiah, a Messiah like one of the kings of old, a new David, who would take power in the conventional sense. This Messiah would overthrow the Roman rulers by force. This Messiah would establish a new kingdom in Jerusalem and, as it were, enforce peace and justice throughout the earth. And Peter's mind is offended at the idea of such a king kneeling before him with a basin of water. Lord, you will never wash my feet. But there are two great strands of thinking about leadership and power in dialogue in the Old Testament. One is certainly the strand about kings establishing themselves by force and with glory and lording it over everyone else. All too often such power corrupts those who wield it 
however glorious their intentions. Think of the long lists of the kings of Israel and Judah, whose hearts become proud and who turn away from the ways of the Lord. There is a second strand, and that second strand is centred on humility. The meekness of Moses, God's servant, who was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. The humility of the young David, whose heart was open to God. The humility of Solomon, at the beginning of his reign, when he sought not wealth, nor power, nor long life, but the wisdom to govern the people of God, and to bear the weight of his calling. It is this strand which finds its fullest expression in the Old Testament, in the songs of our unnamed prophet, who calls himself a voice, who speaks to us in 15 chapters of the book of Isaiah 40 to 55. In chapter 40, we listen to the prophet's call to comfort my people and to call the people back to hope and renewal as they prepare to return from exile. In chapter 41, the prophet seeks to cast out fear and anxiety and find springs of water in the wilderness. Now in chapter 42, the prophet turns from unfolding the greatness of God and God's call to the kind of human agency and leadership which is needed to establish God's reign and God's kingdom. What kind of a leader do God's people need to help us to realise our call in every generation, and especially in times of great difficulty? This prophet speaks, remember, from a crucible of suffering, from the exile, when everything has been destroyed. There is now no king, there is no temple, there is no city of Zion, there is no gathered people of God, there are only scattered exiles, some with a longing to go home. The great experiment of God's chosen people has, it seems, failed. Those who were entrusted with God's law rebelled and turned away. There have been multiple failures of leadership across many generations, of kings and prophets and priests and wise teachers. What kind of leadership is needed now, when everything has come to an end, in the place when everything needs to be rebuilt? Our prophet is inspired by God to draw together the threads of this second great strand of thinking on leadership in the Old Testament. He or she weaves them into four songs which crystallise this vision. We'll explore them more carefully in this podcast series. Later generations have called them the servant songs. These are the prophecies which shape Jesus' own understanding of his call and his mission and his identity as a servant and which shape his ministry and go on to shape the church. This first song in Isaiah 42, 1-4 is quoted in full in Matthew 12, 15-21. It is the longest single quotation from Scripture in the entire Gospel of Matthew. Here is the passage reading from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations, 
He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Every generation has debated the identity of the servant in these songs. In Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot is reading one of the later songs and is stirred to wonder. He asks Philip, about whom does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? In much of Isaiah 40-55, to the whole nation of Israel is called God's servant. But in these songs, the language is much more personal. The prophet is seeking to describe the role of those called to lead the people of God, and especially the one whom God will call in the fullness of time to be servant and guide and to redeem the whole world. Every line, almost every word of this short song is well worth weighing and pondering. As Matthew's Gospel applies the whole text to Jesus' ministry, so should we. It is Jesus for Christians who is God's servant here. The Greek word for servant is pais, which is also the ordinary Greek word for child or son. So another way of translating the Greek text is, Here is my son whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The other place in the Gospels where there's a very strong echo of this line is in the account of Jesus' baptism. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So here is an absolutely vital truth to grasp in terms of the words in Isaiah, in Jesus' own ministry and the service we offer ourselves. The service which is being described here is not drudgery, nor blind obedience, nor service out of compulsion or obligation. This is service rooted in a relationship of love and delight, service which is freely offered, service grounded in a call of God, service which may be difficult, but which is also a source of rich joy. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The prophet goes on then to speak of the way in which the servant is commissioned and sustained. Again, we sometimes have the idea that God gives his servants difficult tasks and then, as it were, steps back and leaves us to get on with them. This is not the case here. God says clearly, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, the accounts of Jesus' baptism echo this verse as they describe the Spirit descending on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says a later prophet in Isaiah 60, words again quoted in Luke 4 by Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus ministers and serves and leads 
out of a close, sustaining, nurturing relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. The life of God, the Trinity, is poured out in him and through him. The aim of this ministry is caught in this word justice, social righteousness, which is repeated three times in the song. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice until he has established justice in the earth. The servant's ministry is not to one nation or community, but for the sake of all the nations of the earth. In the words of the song which follows, God's call to the servant is to be a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is justice. And justice is the very biggest of words. It embraces the whole of setting the world to rights, healing the dislocation between the Creator and the creation, providing a way for sins to be forgiven and humanity to be reconciled with God, the establishing of fairness in human society, in law and politics and community life and the economy, and the good stewardship of creation, and handing on the earth unharmed to future generations. It's hard to imagine a bigger, longer-lasting calling than justice. It's one in which we all share. The service is rooted in a relationship of love and sustained by God. The servant is shaped by this all-encompassing vision of justice. How will the servant, then, reshape God's world? This is the central paradox of servant leadership. The call to transformation, but not by force or conventional human power, but through gentleness and silence. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. The servant's leadership will not overpower us. It will be characterized by meekness and kindness and gentleness, for this is the very nature of God. It is leadership which never gives up hope for individuals or for the world. It is leadership which enables and leaves space for others, and it is a leadership of love. How much we need this kind of leadership in the world and in the church in the present season. We need this leadership as the world rebuilds after Covid. We need this leadership to empower and release the gifts of the church. We need this leadership as we wrestle with the church, with creating a safer church and continuing to care for the victims and survivors of abuse. We need this leadership as we explore and debate human sexuality and gender. And the world has never been in greater need of this deep, healing stream of leadership which exercises power with enormous caution to heal and not to hurt, to build and not to destroy, preserving and not overwhelming 
the agency of others. There is one further line to this first song, one more component of this servant leadership, and it is deeply unpopular and challenging. The servant is rooted in relationship with God, energized by this world-transforming mission, gentle and enabling. But the servant also perseveres, with costly and demanding ministry and sacrifice as an essential part of that mission to serve others. And this note of suffering will increase as we move through the servant's songs. He will not faint. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. There are two lessons here. The first is the need for perseverance in all forms of leadership. When life is demanding and difficult as a teacher or a doctor or a vicar or a civil servant or a church warden or a charity CEO, it can be tempting, very tempting, to walk away. We all need strength and stickability in our leadership. The servant is able to endure by the grace of God. But the second lesson is the cost of that. The servant bears the costly weight of leadership. This weight does not overwhelm God's servant, but that does not mean that it is without cost or easy to bear. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice. In every servant ministry, there is cost and difficulty, as well as endurance. The servant songs will develop this theme in much greater depth and detail, as we read on. By the rivers of Babylon so long ago, this prophet crafts a vision of leadership unlike anything the world has ever seen. Leadership which takes its authority not from wealth or physical strength or armies or thrones. This is leadership which takes its authority from service and vocation in humility and gentleness. This is leadership rooted and grounded in the servant's relationship with God the Creator of all and given vitality by the Spirit of God. This is leadership with the deepest and widest of horizons, establishing justice in and for the earth. This is leadership which perseveres with courage and whose methods are tenderness and silence and care for individuals. This is the vision of leadership fulfilled in Jesus the Servant. This is the leadership we are invited to exercise in our families, our communities and in our churches. Oh, this is so-